Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage our culture intelligently. In this episode, we are finishing our series on the imprecatory psalms, and here the team will be addressing objections to the Christian use of imprecatory psalms, as well as some pastoral dimensions of using these in church. We do want to make you aware that we have a bunch of psalm chants on our YouTube channel, and you can find all of them in the show notes for this episode. We think you'll find these useful in getting the sung Psalter into your life, and if you're looking for more, you can check out our Theopolis Liturgy and Psalter, which was recently published by Athanasius Press. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and Trevor Lawrence discussing the imprecatory psalms. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and our special guest, Trevor Lawrence. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing out the podcast and uh, delivering it to our audience. Thanks for joining us today. We're in the at the end of a series of podcasts on the imprecatory psalms. We've had several weeks where we talked about the psalms in general and, and the different sorts of psalms that we find in the Psalter. Uh, we talked about cursing and imprecations in general. And then in the last couple of episodes, we took a close look at several of the most uh, extensive and most intense of the imprecatory psalms. And uh, we're trying to tease out the theology that's behind them and discuss some of the some of the dimensions of those imprecations. What we're doing in this final episode in this series is addressing some of the objections that people have lodged against the Christian use of imprecations and against the Christian use of imprecatory psalms in particular. And also, we want to talk a little bit more about the pastoral dimensions of this. What, In what kinds of settings is it appropriate to use these psalms? What are the dangers? What are the benefits? And I want to think about how the how the these can be part of the uh, the diet of Christian prayer and Christian hymnody, but in a biblically responsible way. So that'll be another topic that we'll try to cover today. Let me just uh, highlight, point to a couple of major writers who bring up uh, certain kinds of objections to the use of imprecatory psalms. C.S. Lewis famously in his uh, book on the Psalms objects to these as a kind of barbaric form of prayer that uh, don't pro- the, these prayers don't provide a model for Christians and they don't reflect Christian attitudes, certainly don't reflect the Christian command to love our neighbors, uh, Lewis says. And he has some pretty severe language about the imprecatory Psalms, dismissing them as, a, as, as sub-Christian or even uh, anti-Christian in some ways. A more subtle kind of a, approach, uh, not a kind of direct rejection of imprecatory psalms, but a kind of subtle Christological approach is uh, what we find in Bonhoeffer's treatment of the psalms. And he talks about the imprecations as coming to their climax on the cross. Jesus is the cursed one. And so all the imprecations of the psalms are fulfilled in him and in his sufferings. And he takes the place of the cursed one. Uh, and the the insignificance of the imprecatory psalms is kind of exhausted in that Christological fulfillment. So Bonhoeffer would not believe that the imprecatory psalms continue to be appropriate prayers for Christians, but they have this Christological typological function within the canon, point us to Christ, and then it's uh, at the foot of the cross where Jesus suffers as the cursed one that we find mercy, and uh, we also 
are commanded to live in mercy and to speak in mercy and not to to bless and not to curse. And that's possible because Jesus has exhausted the curse of God in his in his sufferings. I'm sure there are other other specific uh, arguments against the imprecatory psalms, but those are two of the views that have been uh, fairly widespread over the over the years. What do you all think of the, about those objections? One of the disappointments for me is the way that they tend to detach their discussion from the narrative of Christ. And so when we're thinking about imprecatory psalms within um, the Old Testament, there are implied progressions that have led to this point. So, for instance, in Psalm 109, which we discussed last time, um, he has received this evil treatment in return for his love and in return for the good that he did. And so it's not as if he starts off wanting to curse. Indeed, the person that he's challenging is someone who delights in cursing rather than blessing. He, on his part, delights in blessing, but yet has been repaid with a curse. And Christ, when he comes to the world, does not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world, which is at enmity with him, might be saved. And he prays for his enemies on the cross. But that's not all of the story. Um, There's the response that is given to that. And then how Christ judges at the end as a response to that rejection of his love, his goodness, and his gracious prayer for um, and intercession for the world that has rejected him. Lewis's view is particularly problematic, uh, despite the popularity and familiarity of that perspective. You know, he he reads these as morally aberrant prayers. I, I think at the first level, that doesn't do justice to uh, what the Psalms actually are within the canon. You know, he talks about them as, uh, you know, the the heat that comes up from the flame of a furnace and strikes you in the face, uh, or the the ravings of barbarous men. Um, But in fact, as we've seen in our discussion, uh, the imprecatory psalms are intensely, carefully constructed prayers. Uh, Not only is there a decidedly... uh, intentional literary crafting, but there is an intense uh, theological logic that is undergirding these prayers uh, and that is theologically legitimating the cries that they are offering with reference to what God has already revealed in the redemptive historical past. I think we can also recognize that, as we've mentioned, the Psalter is a liturgical collection that was intended for use. So uh, the the Uh, canonical force of the Psalms is that they are being offered up as models of faithful prayer. Uh, And lastly, I think we can just uh, note that Lewis's view operates on a really suspect understanding of inspiration. In his reflections on the Psalms, he says that in the imprecatory Psalms, uh, the hatred nearly drowns out the voice of God. We can we have to strain to hear the voice of God through the raging of the Psalms. Uh, but I think for uh, those who hold to the inspiration of Scripture, who have um, an evangelical reading of these Psalms as just as much the Word of God as any other part of Scripture, will need to be able to affirm that 
not only are the compilers of the Psalter presenting these as prayers for Israel, but God himself is presenting them as model prayers, and we are to receive them as his word to us. I want to go back to Alistair's comment, which I think is important not only for understanding the Psalms in their original context, but also for thinking about how they relate to Jesus. Because Jesus does pronounce woes, uh, which is a, a form of cursing or imprecation against the scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, particularly in Matthew 23. But that's following the same narrative movement that Alistair was describing, because uh, Jesus doesn't begin with those curses. He doesn't begin with the the Olivet Discourse predicting the, the fall of the temple. He begins with the call to repentance and with the Sermon on the Mount that uh, that calls Israel to live out the law in the light of the coming kingdom. So uh, it's it's only it's in the it's in the uh, it's in the light of the rejection of this offer of love and communion that uh, Jesus curses them. I think that you're, it's following the same pattern that Alistair was describing in particular Psalms. I believe you can find that pattern also in the book of Acts, because we start off in the book of Acts with the church proclaiming Jesus as Lord and risen from the dead and um, offering redemption to Israel. But as you move through Acts, um, the persecution, the hatred against the saints increases. And so you get some pretty fiery prayers, some pretty fiery passages in Paul, for example, against the Jews, against the Jews who are at least the apostate Jews who are attacking the church. Um, But that doesn't come until uh, after Paul and the church offers, you know, salvation to the synagogues. Uh, Once they turn against Paul, then then these these woes, these prophetic denunciations like in James 5, or in Second Thessalonians one, come out. It's it's uh, so there, the same progression I think can be seen in the church as the church reflects on her enemies and asks God to judge them. This last Sunday evening, my father preached upon um, Psalm one hundred and thirty nine, and particularly focused upon the um, verses nineteen to twenty two, the perfect hatred with which. Um, David describes his relationship with the wicked and those who hate the Lord. And the way that people typically present the imprecatory Psalms as an expression of the psalmist's anger that he needs to work through and eventually arrive at some sort of peace, that's not actually the progression that we find in Psalm 139, which is one of the reasons why I find it one of the more arresting um, imprecatory Psalms. is this great psalm of the Lord's knowledge of the psalmist, the way that there's no way that we can flee from his presence. He is with us wherever. He has knit us together in our mother's womb. He, His ways are so much higher than ours. And then it's at that point that he expresses, um, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And the expression there seems to flow not from his personal anger, but deep meditation upon the character of God and the goodness and the care that God shows to his creation. And it seems just that 
um, unsettles a number of the presumptions that people have about the way that the imprecatory psalms are working. That dynamic is evident in Psalm 104 as well. Uh, There you've got 34 verses of doxological meditation on the, the beauty, the wonder, the intricacy of creation. And then the final verse cries out, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. And so there, uh, the imprecatory cry really is the culmination and capstone of this movement through the glory of God uh, and the, the wonders of his created world. Yeah, and so in both of those cases, the imprecation is a kind of, it's a plea for God to protect the goodness of his creation and, and not let the wicked uh, undo what God has established. So there's a... Yeah, there's a um, a protective yeah, there's a protective interest in uh, not only in the glory of God but in the creation itself. I want to go back to the initial my initial comments and bring up Bonhoeffer again. Uh, before we started recording, Trevor had mentioned Bonhoeffer and uh, how Bonhoeffer has this kind of Christological focus to his interpretation of the imprecatory Psalms, but that's a, a narrowly Christological focus or focuses on only one dimension of Christ's work and. Um, Trevor, maybe you can fill out that comment. Yeah, I think it's really common following Bonhoeffer, particularly in Reformed and so-called gospel-centered circles, uh, to to follow Bonhoeffer's line that Jesus alone praised the imprecatory psalms. Uh, I've heard that in academic presentations, in sermons, um, and it really is this the line of thought that, that Bonhoeffer takes, that uh, in order to pray for justice, one has to be morally, perfectly righteous. Jesus alone fits the bill, and Jesus is the speaker of the imprecatory psalms. But when we look at the New Testament, um, which is a phenomenally elusive, evocative uh, text that's constantly drawing back on the Old Testament in order to tell the story of Jesus going forward. The New Testament authors are alluding to the imprecatory Psalms in all sorts of ways to describe who Jesus is. Uh, w- one of the things we've noted uh, in a previous episode is that the Gospels uh, are regularly relying on the imprecatory Psalms to frame Jesus as the innocent psalmic sufferer. Uh, he is the righteous one who receives hatred in return for his love. And even many of the details, the offer of sour wine, the betrayal by a bread sharing friend uh, are are pulled and referenced from the uh, imprecatory Psalms in order to frame who Jesus is. He's the son of David, who is the perfectly righteous sufferer. But Jesus is also the vindicated sufferer. Uh, He, in his resurrection, receives the vindication before the eyes of a watching world that the Psalms pray for. We've talked about the imprecator as a royal priestly mediator of God's judgment, who's guarding God's temple kingdom and expelling the wicked. And Jesus fits that bill as well. Uh, He cleanses God's temple. He comes in uh, uh, in Matthew 2 with echoes of Psalm 72, 
that he is the royal son who's going to judge the world in righteousness and crush the oppressor and exercise dominion. He's also the substitute for the enemy. Uh, He's not just filling out the role of the imprecator. He's filling out the role of the enemy in the imprecatory Psalms because he receives the the cursed judgment that is due uh, covenant breakers. He's expelled and driven out from God's temple city in his uh, crucifixion. But he's also the third party in the imprecatory triangle. We have the imprecating psalmist, the enemy of the psalmist, and then the God who is the perfect divine judge. And the New Testament is regularly pulling on those types of images as well to describe Jesus. He's the one who exercises talionic justice. He is the one who burns the chaff with unquenchable fire. He is the one who, following the movement of Psalm 68, defeats his enemies and then ascends the cosmic mountain to be enthroned in triumph and glory. He is the one uh, who will judge the world in, in righteousness, as God promises to do in the Psalms. And so what we see from the New Testament is this remarkably multidimensional vision of who Jesus is, uh, that Jesus isn't just filling out one aspect of the Psalms, but he's filling out every aspect of the Psalms. Uh, and, and I think that can fill out in really uh, beautiful and glorious ways the way that we as Christians interact with the Psalms, hear them as uh, foretastes of the story of Jesus, and actually have his story rehearsed to our hearts as we encounter uh, these these polyvalent Christological Psalms in in the text of Scripture. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Trevor. Thanks. I just want to one add one one uh, comment about that. I think that it seems like another kind of contraction of the Christological dimension of these psalms is the limitation of the psalms to the head and the refusal to let the body participate in the head. But the psalms are the words of the whole Christ, uh, Augustine's Totus Christus. And so when we when we pray these psalms, we are praying them in the head. But it's the head and body together that pray the Psalms. It's a, it's a full-bodied prayer. Jeff, you were going to throw something in too. Yeah, well, let me piggyback on what you just said, Peter. That dynamic is also present um, in the Psalms with David and his people, with David the king and his people, because David prays these Psalms but uh, as the head, but his people also are, uh, are to pray them as he offers them to his people. So in the same way, Jesus, the the greater son of David prays these psalms, but he also gives them them to us to pray. And my comment about Trevor's uh, threefold kind of unfolding of Christology of the New Testament in relation to that question about whether it's only Jesus who can pray these psalms is 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 it that third dimension, Trevor, that Jesus is not only the one who prays them, the one who uh, suffers the judgment against the uh, ungodly, but also the one now who is Yahweh, the judge. Is that the dimension you think that helps answer, um, helps deal with that objection about us praying the Psalms? So I think that threefold filling out um, just gives a more robust Christological understanding. Uh, but I think the the most straightforward answer uh, to the objection is one that the imprecatory psalms are put in the mouths of the people of God in the New Testament text. So uh, the the 
clearest example is in Revelation 6, where the souls of the martyrs pray a, a the, the language of Psalm 79 about those who dwell upon the earth and who have spilled the blood of God's temple kingdom community. Um, so there seems to be New Testament validation right there that the saints offer up imprecatory psalms to God, and in the movement of revelation, he receives and responds to those. I, I think it's also important to recognize that the narrative framing that we've been offering of the imprecatory psalms throughout our discussions holds toward this question uh, about can can the church pray these? Re- you're right, David prays the imprecations, and Israel prays with David. David is praying as a royal priest who is guarding sacred space, and subduing the enemy. Israel is a kingdom of priests. Jesus comes as the ultimate royal priest who creates sacred space, who guards the temple kingdom, and who will one day make the entire world uh, the temple kingdom of God. And we who are in Christ are also a royal priesthood who exercise that calling and the agency that we have been given by God in that particular office and role, as we follow Jesus, praying that he would guard sacred space from the enemies who would corrupt his temple kingdom, praying that he would drive out the wicked so that his temple would be consummated upon the earth. Uh, and so I think there's there's sort of the straightforward look at the New Testament text. These are put in the mouths of the saints. And then there's a biblical theological framing that offers a, a narrative logic um, that helps us to understand why it is that Christians have the authority to pray in this way. Think of anything that we find things in the New Testament that are stronger than the imprecatory um, prayers and psalms. We have direct, effective curses. In the case of Elymas the sorcerer, for instance, and um, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit, and in the power of And the inspiration of the Spirit, he declares to Elmas, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And there, it's very clear the Spirit puts these words within Paul, that the hand of the Lord accompanies those words to make them effective, and that this is a means by which Christ is executing judgment against his enemies by the hand of his ministers. And it also seems to me there that one of the reasons we struggle with the imprecatory psalms and prayers is because we just don't take the stakes very seriously. He is someone who is preventing someone from hearing the gospel, preventing uh, the people around him from being influenced by a godly leader. And by preventing him, many people are being held out of the kingdom of God. And so this prayer is not just um, thinking about this guy as an individual and his own private concerns. This is an obstacle to the spread of life. Um, He's someone who, in the same way as the woes pronounced upon the scribes and the Pharisees, they're locking up the kingdom of God. They're not entering in themselves and they're preventing other people. And that is something of the greatest importance. But if we don't think the gospel is a matter of life and death, I don't think we'll take that as seriously as we ought. Yeah, that's a great point, Alistair. And I think that you also have the 
a kind of despair in the face of abuses and abuses of power. Uh, nothing I can do about it. You know, uh, it's uh, it's unfortunate that that happens, but there's nothing to be done. When in fact, uh, again, as we've been saying, God God has given us prayers to do exactly that. But that's uh, I think you're exactly right that we just don't take the stakes seriously enough. I remember um, Harold Brown in his book Heresies. Uh, he has this section in, in the introduction where he says that modern people don't understand that the fierceness that the uh, ancient Christians had against heresies had to do with the destruction that they brought uh, to the lives of the people that were influenced by them. And I've read that to my congregation numerous times when we deal with these kinds of issues. And and it's right, uh, you know, as modern people, you know, hey, religion is just a personal kind of preference, peace and prosperity and, you know, go to heaven afterwards. But yeah, you know, really everybody's going to heaven, so it's not that big a deal. And this is, it's, it's related to this is we don't recognize how dangerous the enemies of God are uh, for, for the church and for also culture, for society. Related to not understanding the stakes, I, I think that's precisely right. We also don't understand the story that we're part of. When our objection to the imprecatory psalms is, well, that doesn't strike me as nice. That seems a little over the top. We've not done business with the story of reality that we are actually a part of, the story of reality that God is unfolding. The telos of this creation is that the glory of God would fill the cosmos like the Holy of Holies that this would be the house of God. The church is the place where the fiery presence of God's glorious holiness has taken up residence. And so if, if we are not, not seeing the gravity of, of what it means when sin is infiltrating the church, or when the seed of the serpent are slaying God's temple kingdom people, or when the kingdom of darkness is running rampant and seemingly uninhibited across this this world that God has claimed through the resurrection of Christ as his territory, we've we've lost sight of the the ultimate horizon of of our story. We've we've decontextualized ourselves in in a different sort of narrative and and not done business with the fact that the story that the Bible is telling from creation to new creation, from Genesis to Revelation, is the story that dictates the shape of our reality and God's ultimate purpose in the world. It's one area where I've found um, James Jordan's remarks about the character of the biblical narrative as one that includes themes of redemption, but also themes of holy war and maturation. Very helpful. Um, because so often we focus narrowly upon redemption and then only redemption of individuals. We're not thinking about the broader theme of holy war, that there is the serpent out there and all of his minions, and we need to engage with him. And the exclusion of that element out of the narrative, which is something that the early church and many other periods of the church and many other parts of the church have a very keen sense of that we're in conflict with evil spirits and forces, powers of the air, all these sorts of things. Um, It's just not as prominent in our um, imaginary. It just is not. 
on our horizon in the same way as it has been for almost all the ages of the church to this point. I want to go back to something that Trevor said uh, earlier about uh, Bonhoeffer's argument that uh, only a morally perfect speaker could pray these prayers. A couple of thoughts on that. One is that not just imprecatory prayers, but a lot of the a lot of the Psalms include David's statements of his own righteousness, and uh, I think that often strikes Christians and maybe particularly Protestants as a dangerous kind of thing to to do, uh, as if David were claiming, you know, uh, he were a, a medieval Roman Catholic who were claiming uh, claiming merit with God. I think those are those statements in the in the Psalms are are valid claims or pleas before God for us. We stand in Christ. We are righteous ones in Christ. We can claim to be uh, the people of God, uh, in that sense, righteous ones. And and that's the basis on which we appeal to God because God has promised to protect and guard his righteous ones. So I think those are that's a valid stance. It's not a self-righteousness. And I think the other side of that is a, a point that uh, Jim Rogers, uh, a, a colleague at Theopolis, wrote about in a, in a little essay on in First Things some years ago. And he talks about how the imprecatory psalms are uh, are also self-directed. We pray imprecations against others, but insofar as we're trying to clear the land or the church of wickedness, we're also calling down curses on any any uh, territory that Satan has occupied within our own lives. Uh, we're calling on God to destroy us insofar as we are in the flesh, operating according to the flesh. We want we want those curses turned turned against us. It's an, in a sense, it's an act of self-love because we want to achieve our final glory in Christ and not not stumble because of some besetting sin. And, and when we pray these imprecations for someone else, we're we're doing the same. It's a, it's a it's a call on God to destroy the wicked, and that might be to destroy the wicked man uh, in order to raise a righteous man. But I think that recognizing that there's this kind of self-reflected dimension to it helps to deflect the uh, charge that these are self-righteous prayers. As a pastor, one of the biggest objections to the imprecatory psalms that I get from people who are not used to singing them in our service is this the simple one is, wow, uh, this seems to violate the spirit of New Testament religion. Uh, this is not I don't, I don't, you know, I get someone to say, well, this is not Jesus I know. Um, and so there's this, and again, we, we could, we just have to, we'd have to fill out even more uh, Trevor's, um, you know, uh, Christology here to, to make sure that people understand that um, this, this basic dichotomy that American Christians have, especially, and some of it is from dispensationalism between the Old and the New Testament, as if somehow Jesus comes to institute and form a new religion. I know that's really basic, but that's really important for people to see that that's not the case. They need to see the the, the connecting tissue between uh, Israel and Jesus, and then Jesus and the church. It's, it's uh, so that, so that um, being able to, to uh, uh, ascertain the correct discontinuities and continuities between the old and the new is something that a lot of people just are not able to do. And as a pastor, it's one of the things I feel like I have to be constantly helping people through so that they'll be able to appropriate the Old Testament and the Psalms uh, in the right way, and then also able to read the New Testament in a way that's consistent with um, 
the narr- the whole narrative from creation to uh, the new heavens and new earth. Considering some of the things that we've been saying about the um, understanding of the Christological basis for use of the imprecatory Psalms, it, it seems to me that one of the things that we're seeing is a revelation of a greatly deficient understanding of what union with Christ means. And people think about their relationship with Jesus very much as this personal heart relationship and very little in terms of authorization for action within the world. One thing that I often point out to people is when people use the language of being sons and daughters of God, they're generally thinking in their mind of being like kids on a father's knee. Um, It's that relationship between the young child and their parent. Whereas within scripture, the son and daughter of God is the one who's acting in their father's name, who has authorization within the world, who represents their father, who works with their father. It's the adult um, son or daughter, generally son. It carries a stronger sense of connection with and reflection manifestation of the father's authority. And so when we're praying the imprecatory psalms, people are tending to think about their own personal um, opponents. And they don't really feel that they have any, perhaps. They think they're nice neighbours. They have maybe some disagreement with a family, some distant family member or something like that. But it doesn't rise up to the level of being worthy of a, an imprecatory prayer or psalm. But what is lost is a sense that we together are the people of God, that we are acting in Christ's name and authority within the world, something that is throughout the book of Acts, for instance. And as a result, these Psalms have no place within our theological mindset to exist in a fitting way. Either we exalt ourselves to a level that seems completely immodest and a sort of hubristic assumption of some messianic or um, kingly role upon ourselves as individuals, or um, they're just abandoned. But yet, if we have a clear clear understanding of the church and its relationship to Christ, then in our gathering together, acting as the church, these things can have their proper force. But I don't think that there is that place within many Christians' um, conception. And as a result, we don't pray these. Yeah, I think that there's there's a perception, at least, that Jesus' instructions about loving enemies amounts to saying, thou shalt have no enemies. But the command obviously assumes the the opposite. It assumes that we will have enemies and that we'll have opportunities to uh, respond with good to those who despitefully use us and who are our enemies. But um, yeah, there's a kind of you know the cancellation of enmity is uh, is part of the at least the contemporary Christian outlook. Yeah, as I said last week um, in the previous podcast, look, this has pastoral implications here. Um, you acknowledge you have enemies, uh, and those enemies uh, are enemies of the church, maybe your enemies. You you leave this before God to have him judge, uh, and that frees you up. You, that frees you up to actually love your enemies, to give them a cup of water, to do something good for them. Uh, and as Paul says in Romans 13, or Romans 12, uh, you give place to wrath, you recognize that vengeance belongs to the Lord, and then you don't take 
personal vengeance. You um, can keep you can heap burning coals on their head by doing them good, um, and then leaving the matter to to God. This is uh, this is something that has great pastoral application, especially today when so many Christians are just seething mad about all sorts of things, whether they're right or wrong about it, putting these things before God, then, as you said, Peter, uh, not only not only leaves the judgment of our enemies to God, but also then <laughs> allows us or we're allowing God to judge us too. Because whenever you ask God to save you, to deliver you, to rescue you, you better be prepared to be evaluated yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always going to happen. Um, and that that's also one of the pastoral benefits of this is if you leave, if you're actually really praying to God about these these matters, these enemies, these adversaries, then that's going to alter your own mentality. That's going to change. That's the Holy Spirit is going to change the way you think about things and correct any any kinds of mistakes you're making in your thinking and your acting with regard to these enemies. Especially if we're following the Christological trajectory of the imprecatory Psalms, right? When we hear uh, the the prayers for judgment against covenant breakers, uh, for the expulsion of those who are corrupting uh, God's holy dwelling place, uh, we can follow that path to the the Son of God who was cut off for our sake. We hear in the rehearsal of these prayers for judgment the crucifixion that ultimately took place because we merited the judgment of God. And so we can actually find in imprecatory prayer a a reaffirmation of, of these great theological truths that I am the one who in Christ was judged. This took place for me. I am not standing in a position of moral superiority. And that will absolutely cultivate the kind of humility, the kind of circumspection that you're talking about. It will, it will generate a profound kind of solidarity with the enemy, that for all the differences between us, I too have stood in the tribunal of God. I too have merited his guilty verdict, and it is only by grace that I have received a reprieve and experienced blessing, which in turn can, can motivate a, a desire for my enemy too to experience that kind of blessing. I think the tri- the Christological trajectory that, that we've talked about in these Psalms has a really dynamic power to shape not only our conception of Jesus, but our conception of ourselves, and in turn our conceptions of our enemies in ways that empower the life of prayerful virtue that we see God calling us to. I wonder if we can come up with some uh, guidelines to think about what uh, what sorts of situations, in what sorts of situations, these uh, prayers and psalms are appropriate. I think, you know, as a if we're singing the psalms on a regular basis as a public in our public worship, then uh, imprecatory psalms will be part of that diet, apart from any specific circumstances. So I'm, and I think they should be part of that steady diet of singing. But I'm thinking more in terms of what what specific circumstances. Uh, elicit the the appropriateness or the need for imprecations, and I, I mean we can think of obvious places where it would be inappropriate, uh, where we might have friction with a uh, you know with a neighbor who's uh, 
mowing somehow violates our property line or, you know, who uh, puts up a, puts up a, uh, a privacy fence that is two feet over our property line. Uh, imprecations in those kinds of circumstances are not appropriate. Uh, but what, where are the, where are the guidelines? How do we, how do we know when enmity is it, uh, is the sort of enmity that, um, that uh, God would approve of these kind of prayers? One thing is just praying them, as you said, in church. That's the proper context. That's the, so that it's a prayer of the whole church. It's about the concerns of the body of Christ. Uh, And one of the, one of the things I tell people when um, they ask about this, I said, well, can you pray this prayer with the whole redeemed community here at our church, Providence, or just the whole Christian church? Are you praying against a personal enemy uh, at work? Or um, even in the you know the country, or or can you pray this prayer in union with the church because it concerns the church and it concerns the body of Christ, so that all these prayers are made in Christ. Um, and if you can't make them in Christ, then maybe you shouldn't pray them. I think it's helpful to think of the imprecatory psalms as implied within our prayer, um, come quickly, Lord. Um, It's the request that the Lord would visit a situation where the effects of sin and the fall and the enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman is very keenly felt. And we're asking for God to come and visit that situation. And that prayer for Christ to come has always implied devastating judgment upon his enemies. And that prayer is at the very heart of the church's um, life. It's something that has always oriented us. And thinking about it that way, I think we should recognize that we are presenting ourselves for judgment at the same time. So when we're praying in imprecatory psalm, we're calling for God to visit a situation of which we are a part. We're calling God to judge in our case And that requires holiness of life. It requires being prepared, um, being those who are mindful and alert, ready for our master to return. And where we are lax in our behavior, we should not think upon it. We should be very wary of taking the imprecatory psalms upon our lips. In the broadest sense, the proper objects of imprecation are any enemy of Christ's temple kingdom. Uh, But sometimes I think the difficulty is, of course, that it's tough to discern, especially in the moments when our hearts are inflamed with a sense of injustice that's occurred. It's tough to discern whether, whether we're actually in the right. I think it's important that the Psalms themselves offer particular safeguards. Um, Peter, you mentioned the regular declarations of innocence that populate these prayers. If I am going to pray an imprecatory psalm, often I'm going to have to go through the declaration of innocence, quorum Deo, before the face of God, before I can get to the petitions of judgment. And Gordon Wenham has noted that the psalms have a commissive quality 
they implicitly require me to commit myself to the posture of the psalmist. And so when I say, Lord, my hands are clean, I am righteous in this situation. Again, not an absolute righteousness, but a relative innocence in a particular situation. That offers me a speed bump of sorts to take stock of my own heart. Am I indeed innocent in this situation? Have I conducted myself in righteousness? Am I angry because this person is frustrating my idolatrous desires? Or am I actually in a situation where the injustice is happening, God's purposes for the earth and for his people are being run up against, and I can, with clean hands and a pure heart before God, exercise my royal priestly office and ask for his judgment. Uh, similar, another speed bump is the constant refrain, and we, we've heard it in past episodes, for your name's sake, O Lord, do this for your glory, do this to demonstrate that you are the most high who judges the earth. That forces me in the very speaking of that prayer before God to ask myself, is this a situation where if God were to answer my prayer in the, the affirmative, that he would indeed be acting consonant with his revealed character. Uh, one more off that strikes me is we've noted that the lex talionis is so important in uh, the the logic of what is petitioned for in this psalm or in this in these types of psalms. They ask for a proportionate justice, which in part puts limits on the type of judgment that I can ask for. And so in all of these ways, we've got the Psalms not just giving vent to our frustration, not just giving vent or license to our passions, but forming them, channeling them in their proper direction in this kind of prayerful pedagogy that God intends as we take up his model prayers as his people. A further thing I'd say is that there is a lot of instruction in Scripture about how we are supposed to pray about leaders and those in authority. And those prayers are mostly positive prayers, a blessing upon our leaders. Um, in the same way as in Jeremiah, where they're instructed in exile to seek the good of the city. Um, we, are to we are supposed to seek the good of our societies. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings need to be made for all people, kings, those in high positions. And the desire is that we would leave, be able to live peaceful and godly lives. So if our life as a church is not characterized primarily by this desire to bless, seeking the blessing of God upon the leaders of our society, upon even those who would stand in opposition to the gospel, seeking that they would be blessed and, and that they would turn, um, that that is our primary impulse and something reflected in the amount of our prayer life as a church that is devoted to that. Um, our desire for the our praying of the imprecatory psalms will be characterized by the sort of posture of the enemy in Psalm 109 who loves to curse rather than bless. But as Christians, that desire to bless, I think, should be very amply evident within our worship. And where that's not evident and where the imprecatory psalms crowd out prayers of blessing and um, petitions for those around us, I think that's a warning sign. Yeah, good point. That's a good point, Alistair. And um, maybe related to that, don't you think that we should also remember that if we pray 
for judgment, God's judgment on our enemies, that that doesn't necessarily mean we're praying for their damnation, that judgment and salvation are not mutually exclusive uh, for us in the, in the scriptures. Salvation is accomplished through judgment, not apart from it. Um, so if we're praying for God to judge our enemies, uh, that may mean uh, he takes them out by means of conversion. There's uh, There are a number of imprecatory psalms. I'm thinking of the one we sing regularly here, Psalm 83, which uh, asks God to fill, I think it's fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord, O Yahweh. Um, now that's, that, that's not the case in all the imprecatory psalms, but yet at the same time, I wonder, um, I have to wonder, and I have to believe that if we're asking God to judge, he may do uh, what he did with Saul. Uh, he judged him all right, but um, he took him out of the he took him out of uh, the path of persecution against his church. But it was a conversion, um, and so I, you know, uh, no affliction, no affliction that God brings on someone is too great. Uh, no judgment is too severe if it, it's going to cause them to seek His face. Yeah. Uh, let me throw out a couple of uh, specific examples and put some maybe some concreteness to it. What about situations where you have political divergences? I mean, you have, this is, this would be the situation that a lot of Christians in the States at least are frustrated today. You have significant political divide. At what point do those political divides become, do people on the opposite side of those political divides become enemies? Is a, what you think is a very damaging policy on social security, for example, or a damaging policy about energy, are those things that are uh, make uh, people who advocate those policies enemies uh, that uh, of the sort that we pray against in imprecatory psalms? That's one level of opposition or enmity. In one of the, I think the first uh, of these the first podcasts in this series, I talked about uh, situations, or maybe the second, I talked about situations in other parts of the world where you have. Uh, ex- uh, Islamicist groups who are preying on Christian villages and Christian communities, uh, kidnapping girls and forcing them into marriages to Muslims, slaughtering the uh, residents of villages in uh, uh, in parts of Nigeria, for example, uh, or the persecution of the church in China and other countries of Asia. Um, there you have a, a direct attack on the church uh, and a, a government that has put itself up uh, as an en- en- enemy of Christ and his church. So within that range, I've got my own answer to those questions, but within that range, where do you think the imprecations are appropriate? Haven't we already given some you know, standards here, some principles that would help uh, the church, the local church, and maybe even Christians in those situations make some determination of whether they can pray in precatory psalms or not. Yeah, I guess I'm, I mean, asking, um, I'm asking to apply it to particular situations. I, I mean, put, give some background here. I got the, I, I preached during Advent on uh, some imprecatory psalms and on the logic that somebody's already mentioned that uh, we're praying for the coming of the Lord. Uh, and afterwards, one of the members of the church came up and said that he was he's so angry about the political situation in the U.S., and yet he had been raised in a strongly dispensationalist church that didn't, uh, that condemned the use of imprecatory psalms. And so it was 
freeing for him to think, you know, there might be a way, there might be a place to go to express my outrage at, at certain things before the Lord. Uh, but is that, is that mm-hmm. an appropriate kind of situation to, um, you know, to, to feel like you have the freedom to pray imprecations in those kind of political uh, struggles? I think the discipline of the imprecatory psalms that we've been discussing is very helpful to help us to discern who our enemies are, in what ways they are our enemies or adversaries or opponents, different levels of opposition that we're facing. And if we don't have that sort of training, um, it can be very easy to exalt some of our minor oppositions or oppositions that are very much about our um, human partisan divides into a level that is just inappropriate. We're exalting our cause above the cause of Christ. And so I think there are a number of distinctions that I would draw. There are some ways in which we're faced with the obstacle of just human folly. Um, There are a lot of policies of governments that are defined less by evil than by folly and a failure to consider things in a wise way. And there are ways that we can pray about that that don't involve um, praying curses upon um, such people. We can pray that policies, people will see the error of their ways, that there will be wisdom brought into the situation, that wise advisors would prevail, all these sorts of things. And that's one way to approach many of the issues that you mentioned at the beginning, um, policies that we think are unwise and unhelpful and maybe very damaging, but maybe well-intentioned. They're just foolish. And then when we're getting into other areas where, for instance, if we're praying about abortion, um, lines are clearer there. Um, And I think in that sort of case, there can be far more directed um, prayers towards stopping people in their tracks, frustrating their ways. And even stronger than that, in some cases where people have very clearly committed themselves to a great evil. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Alistair. I think those are helpful distinctions. Uh, maybe another way of framing it is we have to grow up into the kind of people, people of wisdom, people of virtue, people with intimate self-knowledge that is cultivated through the, the rhythms of repentance and reception of God's grace anew. We have to grow up into the kind of people who are able to distinguish and discern rightly when are these political issues a, a matter of divergent political judgments, um, uh, perhaps seeking good ends uh, in, in ways that we do not agree with, and when are they positively instances of unholiness of injustice, of a kind of violence that is being afflicted upon the poor, the weak, the needy? When are the the movements of a particular empire or regime simply differences in, in political calculation? And when are they more um, a revelation of the image of the beast? that we see in Revelation. 
And I, I do think it requires a kind of formation in wisdom, in virtue, and in circumspection, a formation that takes part in the gathered church, in the practices of the faith, and in the Psalter itself in order to begin discerning rightly um, when, in fact, the people that we are feeling animosity towards are indeed enemies of God's temple, his kingdom, and his purposes in the world. Somebody said it earlier that um, maybe it was Alistair that most of the prayers and uh, model prayers with regard to those in authority are, are positive. For example, in First Timothy 2, where Paul says that we should make prayers and supplications for kings and all those in authority that we may lead peaceful and godly lives and all quiet life and all dignity and honors. I think if we as a churches, as pastors who compose these prayers, embed within these more positive petitions, prayers for judgment, that contextualizes them, that puts them in the right place. For, so for example, uh, last week in our, in our uh, service, part of the prayer was we pray Lord, that you would lead the nations of the world in the way of righteousness, guide and direct our leaders, especially those who hold positions of authority in our country, in our state, in our city, that your people may enjoy the blessings of freedom and peace. Grant that our leaders may impartially administer justice, govern with integrity and truth, restrain wickedness and vice, and protect true religion and virtue. Those that have evil designs against your people, Lord, may they be turned back, confused, and shamed. We ask you to hear us, O Lord. Um, That I think that helps people, helps frame for people how these prayers are supposed to be uh, uh, supposed to be embedded into wider, bigger concerns, more positive concerns. Uh, There's a kind of uh, I don't know if I want to call it a soft imprecation, where you're asking the Lord to. You're not specifying a particular thing or person but you're asking the Lord to frustrate the designs of some power that might abuse their power uh, without naming names. You, you're just, you're talking about praying for a, a new administration that the Lord would bless and guide them, give them wisdom, but frustrate any designs they have that would be unrighteous and establish and establish wickedness. Yeah. It can be easy to use the imprecatory Psalms or think about them when we're having this sort of discussion in the context of our, existing political obsessions and concerns, where so often it's the um, more general political spectacle that everyone is caught up with in a society, that we are trying to use prayers and psalms in service of advancing our cause within that. And I think this fails to see the degree to which um, praying these psalms and prayers is a means by which we reframe our complete act, our complete conception of what it means to do politics. That as Christians, our primary political work is prayer. Um, that takes precedence over all of these other things that we think of in terms of political activism. The primary task of the church is to approach a higher throne and petition on behalf of their societies to seek the cause of Christ's advance and to commit ourselves to be judged and to be those who are authorised to go out in the name of the Lord to our particular situation. And if we have that practice, I think it will change 
a lot of things about the way that we conceive of politics. And so our prayers won't be used in service of the more general political spectacle. They will completely reframe the way that we think about what's going on in our world. Alistair mentioned earlier that as sons of God, we are to be adults. And adults in navigating situations like this, especially with regard to adversaries and troublers, um, need a lot of wisdom. Uh, have to be pretty crafty. This is th- this question about how do we use the imprecatory psalms? When do we use them? To whom can we um, make reference when we're praying to God about judgment? Uh, it's very similar to the question about deception. So you know. If I teach on Abraham deceiving Pharaoh or Abimelech or the midwives deceiving Pharaoh in Exodus or Samuel deceiving uh, Saul, and we talk about the the use of righteous deception, everybody always has this question, well, when can I do this? You mean I can actually say something that's contrary to fact when I'm in a situation like that? I say, yeah, but you need to really be careful about <laughs> uh, when you do this. Um, these you have to evaluate what the the situation very carefully. You can't just decide to lie to your boss because you think she's being mean to you or even being unjust to you. That's not these these are these are tyrants. These are deadly tyrants. Um, and so, in a similar way with the uh, with the imprecatory psalms, we have to be wise and discerning and careful and even crafty about how we use them so that we don't fall into the trap of just uh, making them expressions of our own personal hatred and vengeance against an enemy. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.